This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. Welcome to the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, where we examine the week's financial and business news across the world. The big, the Brexit, the central banks, and this week, the border wall. I'm Nick Howard. Joining me in the studio is Oanda Senior Market Analyst, Craig Earlham. Craig, always a pleasure to speak. We've spoken a lot this week. Let's kick off with Brexit, if we can, because despite us almost spinning our wheels a little ahead of the vote next week, we've still seemed to have a little heating up little movement in what goes on in that crucial backstop. There's another B I could have used. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems so, that silence has actually been quite good for Theresa May. There's not been actually actually much happened this week. I mean, that's one of the benefits of not having any parliamentary sessions broadcast on TV, no votes, um, is that, that we've not actually had much noise. So there's been a bit of rhetoric and bits around, and there's obviously people who are not going to stop reporting on Brexit just because Theresa May isn't speaking. But it seems that it's really benefited her. They, 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 we've in a slight softening from certain factions on both sides. We had Jacob Rees-Mogg suggesting that she, if she can just get rid of the backstop then uh, Brexiteers could probably get behind the deal, or at least he can, but again I think many people see him as speaking almost on behalf of the ERG. We had uh, Keir Starman who, uh, who uh, from the Labour side suggesting that we've kind of accepted now that there's going to have to be a backstop of some kind. It's not much of a softening, but it is a slight change which suggests that almost you can see the walls closing in where Theresa May's deal is kind of in the middle like they're all getting a little bit closer as the week has gone by the problem is still this red line of the backstop which let's not forget is there to prevent a um, a hardening of the border in ireland where there is still atrocities going on still bombs being exploded still people dying You'd think that um, responsible politicians would be able to say, OK, so people in um, uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland, not all factions, because, of course, the DUP don't support it, but say that this um, kind of scenario needs to be there. Let's just get on with it, because... Apart from anything else, if we don't have the backstop, then we still need something that keeps customs and uh, regulations more or less aligned. Otherwise, we will end up with a border. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to remember that you talk about sensible politicians, but this is ultimately a negotiation. So this kind of this kind of idea of sensibility goes out the window. People are looking for the best possible deal in the long term. Just because they're threatening something now, it doesn't mean they'll follow through with it down the line. And there's probably a number of politicians who said we are committed to ensuring there's no backstop. We don't need. We, we, so we are committed to ensuring that there is no border, hard borders on the uh, in between Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. We don't need this backstop to tie our hands in order to deliver on that. And um, for years, that's been, or in many ways, the the case. Obviously, the EU and the single market and customs union has made that a lot easier but um, the, the, there's still the, in many in their eyes will probably be that the, the commitment is still there to do that and a solution can be found um, So here is an oddity then on exactly that point which was that um, a, um, a senior EU official um, said what we all knew this week which was in a no deal Brexit there would have to be a hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland because, you know, the, the backstop isn't there. We've, we've been going through this now for uh, what it feels like years. But Ireland disagreed with this um, and the EU uh, negotiator Michel Barnier seemed to uh, backpedal, um, suggesting that some kind of scenario would be findable to allow a soft border to continue even in a no-deal exit, to which I think... 
quite sensibly, a number of um, Brexiteers said, oh, well, let's just do that then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, this is the problem, which, which brings me back to my original point that we, we can't all... We, we, we're sometimes getting so engrossed in what's being said and trying to find the solution and trying to find solution based on the fact that most of us don't have actually all of the information at hand but just trying to make the most of the information we do have try and make some sense of this trying to almost humanize this situation and say now come on if we've got this and this is why are you saying that why are you here why are you we've done this for two years um so yes you're taking that particular scenario and it again just brings me back to my original point this is a negotiation and we'll probably see exactly where people really stand on about march 22nd unless there's an extension hopefully before then obviously that's a bit of an exaggeration but yeah this is a negotiation and that's what we're seeing played out here but like i say it's been quite a good week for theresa may on that point it does feel like we're seeing uh, i said last week again movement by process of elimination we're running out of time and that's forcing people to actually show their real hands i think we'll see a lot of movement in the early part of next week um which is when we'll have the vote we'll also see the amendments being tabled and see which ones are actually put to a vote in front of parliament uh, and how the part how the house actually does feel about these uh different perspectives and then we'll also see where this party loyalty actually really lies and i'm looking particularly across at labor which has looked very unified um uh, throughout the at least the most recent part of this brexit debate and like i said i feel like then we're going to start to see some movement process of elimination you get one thing out the way you move on to the next stage to the next stage to the next stage and eventually we're going to be left with a few feasible options on the table and that's when you get a meaningful vote in parliament that's what i was saying the last week the vote in parliament that we had uh, for theresa may's deal it was nothing like a meaningful vote because everyone knew they could just vote for the what they prefer to happen uh, while it's still on the table so i feel like uh this week it's just the only thing that i've really learned from this week and the only the major progress this week has come from the fact that we're looking at no deal and that looks increasingly unlikely i've said for a long time i don't think it's likely to be honest just because when there's so much opposition to something the chance of it accidentally happening feels a bit ridiculous but now there is real efforts being made to actually block it and make it as impossible as possible if that makes sense for Theresa May to actually have as an option on the table and I've said again all along I think it's a negotiating tool Theresa May has made it perfectly clear she doesn't want to do that talking about how catastrophic it's been while on the other hand threatening it with the EU um, but it feels like it's moved more and more off the table now and that's why we've seen to bring this back to the markets the pound has actually had a really good week mm, it's up around two yeah. percent against the US dollar Today, I think, is the first day of the week when it's actually backtracked a little bit, taken maybe since some profit taking in the markets. We've gone through 130 with relative ease, which doesn't typically happen because markets tend to respect these big uh, round levels. Um, so the fact that we've done this suggests that investors are feeling a little bit better about no deal prospects, which just leaves uh, softer Brexit options on the table and obviously still no Brexit. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about some of the interventions this week which have sort of nudged. Um, those scenarios. I'm thinking particularly of companies like Airbus who have made their opposition to a no-deal exit very clear and suggested that they would be moving their business away if that was the case because it would make things tougher to move things across the border and to um, deal with different regulatory scenarios. Do you think these kind of interventions are useful? Oh, I mean, that's a really tough one to answer, isn't it? Um, I think they are things that shouldn't be ignored. And I feel that it's um, discussions that should be taking place more behind the scenes than uh, in the tabloids. 
simply because behind the scenes there's ways and means of taking those threats seriously and it affecting policy clearly there is a belief now that they need to have more of an impact on public opinion as well there is a prospect of a second referendum so they want to ensure that the public is fully aware of what they'd be voting on in the event of that scenario and they also know that mps do bow to public pressure and Um, these are companies i mean they've also got to speak to their shareholders as well and also you know the stakeholders in their supply chains i mean if you're advocating doing everything behind the scenes i mean that's not very democratic that's not very transparent but then it's a, it's a case of how transparent you need to be with every minute detail of this process. And the problem that we have is that you're effectively feeding lines to Project Fear advocates, the, the people who suggest that any negative headline is Project Fear at work, who effectively continue to drum up support for um, some of the, maybe, should we say, the angrier Brexiteers uh, out there. And uh, and I feel like this is just feeding them lines and suggesting that actually you are not telling us a realistic scenario. You are a business who are better served by the UK being in the European Union rather than outside the European Union. You don't care about the reasons why people actually voted for this. You don't care about the politicised um, component of this. All you care about is your bottom line. And that is almost one of the things that people voted against was the fact this kind of corporate greed. So it's you it, making this public. I completely understand the viewpoint. But as as ever with this Brexit debate, it's fifty two forty eight. I mean, it is yeah, it's a legitimate um, claim, isn't it? That businesses obviously care about their uh, bottom line, and stability is more um, integral to that. So, I mean, we, you know, the cliche that businesses hate uncertainty, the markets hate uncertainty. Um, but the uh, opposition to that, I suppose, would be that if you go down the line of not providing negative headlines for fear of invigorating um, the the Project Fear um, advocates, as you say, that's only a sort of rarefied or more sophisticated way of saying don't feed the mob and ultimately that means you're controlled by the mob exactly but uh, we're almost suffering now the consequences of pre-referendum people putting out forecasts and always only highlighting the far exaggerated versions of them like uk gdp could fall by up to x amount and then the headline is uk gdp will fall by up to x amount unemployment will rise by x amount taking the worst case scenario Mm. situations on every possible occasion so now it's almost like the boy who cried wolf we've had so many crimes at this stage that everyone just everyone just assumes especially on the more brexit side of the argument and even a number of people in the center who were uh umming and ahhing around the time of the referendum who weren't entirely sure which way to vote they take everything uh with a pinch of salt they don't necessarily believe anything they read anymore because everything's just been so hyper exaggerated that, that you it's hard to believe what anything you hear but it obviously this is very divisive, so it exists on the other side as well. So whenever a Brexiteer makes a claim that we'll be absolutely fine outside the EU two months or whatever, three months of pain, and then it'll all be plain sailing from there, and naturally then the... Obviously, that's not an, a, a real quote. That's just um, just a made-up uh, idea uh, off the top of my head. But then people on the other side will be saying, no, you're exaggerating and you're this. This is what the Brexit debate has become. It's become bold claims uh, and... Uh, and which have been just ignored when some of them really need to be listened to. But which ones do you pick? Let's move to another heavily partisan and polarised debate. Let's look at the other side of the Atlantic where the government shut down in the US or is now, well, it is now far surpassed the previous records. Um, and we now have hundreds of thousands of workers who haven't been paid since last month. 
that is only one aspect of this, that this is obviously still a, uh, a breakdown in US governmental um, process, that if nothing can get through Congress, where do you go from there? What actually, who blinks first? I guess we have to remember that politicians always have their eyes on the polls and they will be paying very close attention to how the public views this. And my feeling right now is that we're not sat in the US, so we're not reading the headlines that are in the newspapers every day. We are paying a bit some attention to the US websites. It's, it's impossible to ignore. But the impression I get from everything I read, and I hope I'm not just unintentionally reading one side of the argument here, is that the Democrats are doing better out of this shutdown than Trump is, that people so view mean this more... in terms more, of the, the PR battle, as it were? Exactly, that people view this more as Trump's fault than view it uh, as, the, as the Democrats' fault. And I'm obviously talking as an aggregate there, not talking on behalf of the entire US population. Sure. And therefore, they don't look likely to back down anytime soon, which is why Trump is maybe considering using exceptional powers in order to try and get the funding for this wall over the line that won't require the backing of the House and the Senate, where he is effectively um, un- empower- has no power because of the, the Democrats taking the majority in the House at the, uh, at the midterm elections. One of the issues with that is that it is much easier for a group of people to back down from a fight than it is one man, particularly someone who has made a career out of not backing down, out of winning the fight. The Democrats... Um, have more of their new to the um, uh, the House in terms of this um, uh, Congress, um, and they have uh, slightly less to lose in terms of face because they can share the um, the blame and the responsibility if the um, PR battle was to swing that way. But Trump, it is for me impossible to see a way that he can back down here without uh, you know affect it with it without ever being able to come back. Yeah, and I think that's why we are seeing these exceptional powers seriously be considered. I don't think another president would be even considering doing something like this, but I think in Trump's mind, delivering what he promised in his election campaign supersedes all else, and he believes that that will get him elected again, irrespective of whether it's responsible, irrespective of whether it's correct, irrespective of whether he made a claim that he... shouldn't have made initially yeah bearing in, in mind we're still we're fighting over a, a wall that he said mexico would fight uh, would pay for originally exactly and now he would now he claims that this is a wall that they will pay for via the usmca mm. deal which again there's not any evidence of but um, again it's just another bold claim um it it i don't see I can't see who backs down at this stage i find it really difficult and when i speak to people uh, across that side of the pond there is seems to be constantly a feeling that we're getting so we're getting to a point where someone's going to have to back down. But now it's the end of January. Federal federal workers are about to go for their second page. There's the through the without a paycheck for the second time. We're seeing extraordinary things being said and come out. So we've, we've mentioned before the Coast Guard releasing a paper suggesting that people should um, make up for lost earnings by having a garage sale, by babysitting. And we've heard stories about people becoming Uber drivers on the side to try and generate an income in these uncertain times and not turning up for work, obviously working mm. elsewhere. The Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, saying that people should be taking loans, which is very uh, Marie Antoinette 
isn't it? Let them eat cake. Yeah, I mean, how to um, how to show the world and the country and the voters that you are incredibly out of touch, uh, multi-millionaire, maybe even a billionaire, if I'm not mistaken, by saying, why don't people just get a payday loan, effectively? That'll sort them out. I mean, it's fine, no problem. They'll get paid in 30 days. I think the important point here is the fact that we are in a in quite a tense situation. There are a huge amount of people who are being affected by this. People who are being ordered back to work without pay. People who are not turning up for work, uh, either out of protest or out of having to work elsewhere. In many people's lives, many people's lives are being turned upside down. But as a result of this, and you feel like it's going to have to. Um, it, the, the pressure is going to mount at some point and as I come back to my original point pe- these people are watching the polls all the time and Trump may not care quite so much at this moment because he feels like delivering ultimately on his promise is the most important thing but there is a lot of Republicans out there who are watching this thinking this is doing more long-term damage to the rest of us and it's not just Trump that's being affected and we need to be seen to be trying to find a solution and when you've got the Democrats saying well we're proposing reopening government with these bills that just doesn't include any border wall, border wall funding this reopens government let's get these people back to work let's get them paid and it's being rejected it's no surprise if what we're reading is that the Democrats are actually being less harmed as a result of this because this ultimately therefore does look like Trump's shutdown and it's a shutdown which he actually did claim responsibility for ultimately when goaded uh, into mm, it. Yeah. He ultimately claimed responsibility for it initially and I really think that was a big PR mess up on his part. When you're failing domestically, you tend to look for wins in foreign policy. There are two um, possible situations um, ongoing for Trump here. So you have his intervention this week in terms of Venezuela, but also I think more um, appropriately for us, the ongoing um, trade war and trade battles with China, where Wilbur Ross, we just mentioned, has said that uh, contrary to reports earlier in the week, they are miles and miles apart in terms of getting an agreement. Yeah, it's it's been a really interesting week on that front because it's similar to Brexit. In the absence of any actual movement uh, and any official lines, we've been having to make up for that with uh, with rhetoric in the media. We've had to be making up for that with rumours and speculation, some of which will have some substance, others, others uh, less so. And... Wilbur Ross's comment has come on the back of a week in which we've all, there's already been speculation. It was reported by the FT and it was reported by others, so we're not talking uh, small publications here, unreputable ones. We're talking major publications suggesting that the, there was a meeting, uh, a preliminary meeting, a preparatory meeting ahead of a bigger meeting on the 30th and 31st of this month in Washington that was cancelled between the US and China, um, which suggests that the talks have maybe hit a stumbling block. Now, this was actually denied uh, by uh, Larry Kudlow, who suggested that those room, these these stories were false. But interestingly, when markets initially reacted to this report, they didn't necessarily re- unwind mm-hmm. that uh, reaction when it was rejected. Which makes me suggest that, which would suggest to me that, from an investor standpoint, they don't, they th- they're thinking that there's no smoke without fire here. That this respectable publication and others supporting it saying this um, means that maybe it has hit a bit of a speed bump and when you see the comments now from uh wilbur ross suggesting they're miles and miles uh, from an agreement um that doesn't look great uh it doesn't suggest that where it does suggest that there is a stumbling block i don't think it's a massive thing at this point in time everything we've heard before this has been very positive and this isn't just trump on twitter this has been supported as well from the chinese side also 
it suggests to me that they are making headway, but there are still some big issues that they are really struggling to overcome, which begs the question, what at the end of this 90-day period, at the start of March, what is going to be deemed successful enough in these talks to actually at least guarantee an extension of the talks and uh, no further tariffs being imposed? And is that what markets will deem a success? Sure. I mean, that is the uh, the sword of Damocles hanging over uh, not uh, just China, but also US in terms of consumer goods. Let's move finally to Europe, where the European Central Bank um, this week has reacted finally to increasingly poor economic data coming out of particularly the established economies like um, France, Germany, um, Italy. Not only have we had increasing budget problems in many of those countries, but trade wars are affecting Germany and its enormous trade surplus. The ECB, I mean, egg on its face, isn't it? That's only a month after um, unwinding its um, quantitative easing program or beginning that unwinding process, now saying that uh, the economies are back into uh, into shrinking territory. Yeah, I mean, we. The, I think the ECB's got such a tough job because it began to end its quantitative easing program. It would have looked uh, maybe even spread a bit of more worry if it would have suddenly paused it with only 15 billion to go. So I don't think that necessarily... Only um, 15 billion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, when we're looking at the size of the balance sheet, we're talking <laughs> trillions. Um, the... I don't think it was necessarily the wrong decision to end its quantitative easing program, and I think it will be the right decision when they announce it to not raise interest rates this year. The only embarrassment then coming for Mario Draghi, who joined the European Central Bank, uh, the meeting after Jean-Claude Trichet raised interest rates in 2011, and uh, Mario Draghi was quickly forced to retreat on that and cut them again, and he'll become the first European Central Bank president never to raise interest rates. So I'm sure he would have loved to have got that one under his belt the month uh, that he was leaving in order to say, like, I, I came at the worst, the darkest uh, part of the financial crisis, and I left with a rate hike showing that we were on the right trajectory and returning to growth. So he may have to go without that particular one. But... I think they have to acknowledge that the European economy is slowed. It's actually been slowing since the start of mm. 2017. The PMIs that were released earlier in the day were re- were quite damning. We have to take into consideration that there are domestic issues. So in Germany, for example, with the emissions testing has had a big impact on car manufacturing there, which is a, uh, an important component to the economy. But we saw German manufacturing slip into contraction territory for the first time. So that's where the PMI falls below 50. And that's been on a slow trajectory down for the, uh, for the last year. The French services sector fell into contraction territory as well. Presumably affected by things like the gilets jaunes. Exactly, uh, and that's that was been that's been primarily um, attributed to the slowdown that we actually have seen in France. But the fact that this is continuing month on month now yeah. maybe suggests that there is uh, deeper issues as well across the in- entire block. And we've been talking about a slowdown for the for the last few months anyway, so it's not a huge surprise. But it seems like now we've gone from talking about Europe ending uh, 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 an unconventional stimulus program. And now we're talking about possible recessions in some of its largest economies. So it's not ideal. And I think when we heard from the... And again, this also comes on the back of the IMF um, warning about growth as well, lowering its own forecast this week um, for the global economy, pointing to events like we've covered here, Brexit and the uh, US-China trade war as being uh, uh, key factors in the lowering their growth forecast as well. 
and the ECB is is likely to react in March. I think March is the next meeting. That's when we get the new economic projections, and I think that's where we'll push back their interest rate expectations. Talk about LTROs again, which is the financing effectively for uh, for financial institutions, which was one of the extraordinary measures that was introduced during the financial crisis. The look, I think there's going to be another offering of that to try and ease some of the pressure on some of the banks, particularly in the periphery, which took most advantage of it. Uh, looking at Italy, I think probably there more so than others. Apart from that, though, it was quite a boring meeting. <laughs> uh, it was uh, the, it, when when everything happens as expected. And all due respect to Mario Draghi, I, I, th- I he seems like a really nice guy, and I'm sure there's probably going to be people who hate me on here who. Um, uh, who, who, with who are among those who've demonised central bankers throughout this entire financial crisis, and I think they've just been the people at the worst possible jo- jobs uh, for uh, d- in so many decades because having to deal with such incredible times. Craig, always a pleasure. Craig Earlham, their senior market analyst at Oanda. This is the Oanda Market Insights podcast, available from iTunes and all of the places where podcasts live. Next week, of course, a big week for Brexit. Join us to be discussing the enormous vote on the 29th, Tuesday, but also all of the other headlines and major happenings as well. Have a lovely weekend. the Oanda podcast from the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am, listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.